Hi, my name is Shahid, and you're listening to the Us People's Podcast with Savia Rocks. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Us People podcast. I'm your host, Savvy Rocks, and today I have Shahid here with me, who is a data scientist. Hey, Shahid, how are you? Not bad, yourself? I'm not too bad. Thank you so much for coming on the Us People podcast. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I normally do ask people is about their upbringing and their background of where they yeah. came from. Um, could you explain to me a little bit about your upbringing and your background? And how that influenced you into being a data scientist? Because I know just before we started recording, you were in film before, so you've actually transitioned over. So maybe that's yes. something we can also implement into the question as well of why you kind of transitioned over to be a data scientist. But let's start with your upbringing and your background first. Sure. So pretty unremarkable. Uh, grew up in, born and grow, grew, uh, grew up in East London, still around these parts. Um, yeah, to be honest, I mean, to be honest with you, yeah, it's pretty unremarkable upbringing, you know, the usual churning through the education system and living life, getting to know the world or what I thought the world was. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you could ask me a few more questions. I, yeah, it's, it's pretty run of the mill stuff. Went to an all boys school, which okay. sometimes people find a bit unusual because they, they associate that with. Uh, a private education, but it wasn't. It's one of the, I guess there aren't many now, but it's it still remains one of the, you know, publicly funded, regular public school just happens to be an all boys school. Yeah. Um, did two years of college, uh, started with five A levels, dropped two, ended up with three. Um, and then after that point, worked a gap year. Yeah. So I, I worked uh, as an architectural model maker. Yeah, as all things. So again, again, completely different to film <laughs> and um, and everything else I've done. So I spent a year doing that, which was quite interesting. And and just as a quirky point, where I work now, I can actually see a building um, which I I did a, I built a model for back oh, in wow. two thousand and nine. So it's kind of weird seeing that building. I spent three months making a model of it yeah. for the architects I worked at, and now I can actually see that building every day. Um, so after the gap year, went to university, studied aeronautical engineering, uh, which again seems very different to everything else. Um, but I, I had a long-standing passion for, yeah, I guess yeah, I would I would use the word passion here for aviation and flying. So I wasn't particularly sure what I wanted to do at university. To be fair, I wasn't sure if I even wanted to go to university, but I did go to try it out. I figured if I'm going to do it, pick something that I have an interest in. So aeronautical engineering was the way to go. And and yeah, things one thing led to another, which I guess we'll get into when we yeah, talk about the of rest course. of the journey. But hopefully that's given you some kind of idea. Yeah, most definitely it has. How was your family towards you when you were going into your education? Were, did they push you? Because I know every family is different. I know every yes. culture is different when it comes to education. But how was your family towards you when you said that you wanted to do a particular thing, but then go into another field? Um, so to clarify a point, when you say do a particular thing, but go into another field, what specifically are you referring to? I mean, in the sense of for you to be able to go into. So you went to university. Yes. And in university, what exactly did you study? aeronautical engineering okay so you've done that and then yeah. you came out but then yeah. you've done film 
Yes. How did your family feel towards that? Because you have a degree. Yes. So to be fair, they they never really they've never generally expressed strong views on things that they felt an education was important. So at, at a point in time when I was kind of expressing the desire to not go to university, um, there was a bit of not pushback, but kind of encouragement in, in that direction um, from from various family members, which is understandable, right? Uh, however, what funnily enough, what actually got me to consider university and putting the applications a little bit late was actually um, one particular family member who has gone through university and, and done the whole hog who said, look, I get where you're coming from, but why not just try it out? And if you don't like it, drop it. And I thought, actually, yeah, sorry, why not, right? I mean, it's better to maybe try it. There's no, you know, it's not like you're walking through the door and that's it, you're in a jail cell for three years. Yeah. I know some people feel that way, but it's not actually the case. Um, and that's actually what got me there, really. It wasn't, you know, it was just like, yeah, let's just try this out. Um, and things... Kind of fell into place. Ha- happened from there, yeah, it happened from there. As to actually working in film, uh, as we might discuss later on, that was a, a very serendipitous event. It wasn't intended. It wasn't planned. Um, various things happened that led to it happening, and it all kind of spiraled completely out of control from there. So, uh, yeah, that wasn't actually. I, I never, in a, you know, I kind of dabbled with shooting with like little films with my friends as a kid and stuff like that, but nothing serious. There was no overt desire to be to work in film or to do anything with film. It it happened to me, which. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I I have friends and I know people who who strive for years and years to break in is very difficult. I was fortunate, lucky, coincidental, however you want to put it, to have a skill set which was very much in demand at that time and still is in demand to a degree, although perhaps not quite in the same flavor as it was when I got involved. Specifically, I was a the fancy term would be aerial cinematographer. The yeah. the, the less fancy term would be drone pilot. So I would build uh, design and build and fly drones for film sets and tv productions and whatever have you right if you need a camera in the air um generally you, you want to go for the drone look you know i was your guy so i had that was so that started in 2000 and started in late 2012 that's when that journey started so a few months after graduating from university um but prior to that i had about i'd say 10 years of flying and and doing lots of radio controlled airplanes and so i was already very familiar with the actual flying of and the technical side of radio controlled flying machines generally so for in those 10 years i'd been doing lots of radio controlled flying uh, at a competitive level as well um i'd ended up writing for a few magazines on the topic so in the sort of uk and perhaps somewhat the international stage i was a known person so I had a lot of experience, which meant that when it came to doing the drone stuff, it was very natural for me. So, you know, I was like, yeah. And at that time, it seemed like there weren't that many people, at least that I was aware of. I mean, they were, they were out there, but generally. So if you've got someone who, who wants to do drone filming or at least want to do drone filming at that point, yeah. who knew nothing about radio controlled aircraft, you know, they might go and purchase something off shelf or do some bits and pieces like that. 
at that time there's limitations there were limitations and i don't know if there still are but there might still be as to how big a camera you could use and, and various things and also just the raw skill set of being able to fly the drone and put it into unusual scenarios and situations you know just having the raw flying ability to, to maybe push the envelope a little bit um but whereas i've been doing radio controlled aircraft for 10 years i was like oh you want a drone to lift that camera yeah i'll build it or something would break on set yeah i can fix that so it's all those skill sets that kind of you know would churn things along because we were able to fly the bigger cameras like reds with cinema yeah. lenses to a degree which a lot of people couldn't yeah or didn't want to get into so you know going a step beyond the dslr cameras like canon 5d's 5d is beautiful camera by the way but a lot of people want it's like no we want a red camera in the air yeah yeah okay that we can do that and it actually peaked at one point where we flew two reds together side by side for stereoscopic 3d mm -hmm. uh, which was an imax production oh my gosh that's yeah. pretty cool how how important do you feel education is especially within what you do um how do you feel do you feel that people do need to have an education or do you feel like if you have the talent you do not need to have education so yeah that, that's a very good question i so let me think about this one for a moment so so i guess it would depend on first and foremost how you or i or anybody else might define education very true i i do have views on for want of a better term the education system i'm not i'm not saying that oh this is a system and you know there's some conspiracy theory behind it to make us all into drones but i don't i, I by the same token i don't uh, and drones as in you know yeah. <laughs> drones as in minus people not as in we all turn to flying machines that'd be quite interesting um but i i, I don't put it to you this way if i don't if somebody has a formal education higher education a degree whatever have you i i tend to not let that or necessarily immediately come to the conclusion that oh this person's done a degree therefore they're going to be xyz they're going to be they're going to have they're going to be more open-minded or the ability to think critically no i don't think that at all education has without putting a good or bad spin on it it has a very practical purpose in the world in which we inhabit in our immediate surroundings you know it helps you get a job blah blah do i think that should necessarily be the case no you know i don't and there is there are people i've met um some some friends of mine come to mind who do not have a formal higher education who work in incredibly technical jobs for some very well-known um, institutions which never in a million years anyone would believe that's possible but they are out there so yeah it, it depends what i guess what you mean by education formal education yeah so in, uh, let me try i'm kind of rambling a little bit but i guess people are who they are in my experience whether you have a phd or not doesn't necessarily will, will for me I don't see a strong link between that and someone's ability well so, and, and who someone is right you can get people who've gone who have 10 years of higher education who work in postdoctorate fields who can be incredibly dogmatic and close-minded to various ideas yeah. you have people who who don't have any formal education who for again like you you could argue us very very street smart right you know, they might not have all the book knowledge, but yeah. you put them in different situations that they've never been in before. And they have a pretty good ability to take a step back, analyze and look at that situation and, and really take the world in. And 
that kind of ability. I guess I could say I put more emphasis and yeah, perhaps the word value on an awareness of the world than I do on academic credentials alone. I like that answer. It makes, it will make people think. Um, Another question I have for you is for people who don't understand what a data scientist is, and I know we spoke about it a bit before where you said to me, yes. Savio, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not that, it's not like that. But for people who don't understand what a data scientist is and does, could you elaborate and tell us a bit more about what you actually do? Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's quite straightforward, really. A data scientist tries to extract meaningful patterns and information from data really that's that's a very broad definition but it's the but it, it pretty much is what data scientists do now they may they may do that in the in the private sector the public sector you know for whoever but essentially data scientists look at data and usually will be trying to answer some sort of question right um that the organization they work for or even them as individuals is trying to explore you know oh so you know straightforward example might be oh you know if you know if if the business was to offer this i don't know loyalty program how would that impact sales right or what do we think might happen okay so do we have some data on previous things or, or other related things sure okay let's look at the data and try to extract some you know try to get towards that answer um you might also try and use data to predict things so you look at past patterns in that data and you try to use it to predict what will happen next. And everyone has a very, very clear understanding of this because we all know about targeted advertising when we browse the internet, right? Or you go on Amazon, Amazon suggests things to you based on what you've bought previously. That That's a form of prediction. You know, Tesco club card. Actually, Tesco, I believe, is still very respected and widely regarded, you know, highly regarded in the sort of data science world because club card was kind of one of the, Again, my history on this is not so great, but my understanding is Club Card and the Tesco, you know, loyalty programs, supermarkets, loyalty programs were some of the first practical applications of looking at large data sets and trying to figure out what are the things that people, oh, you know, if somebody's got these three things in their in their shopping basket, they might be probably going to buy this thing. Maybe we should offer them discounts on that thing that they tend to buy and, and you know, did very well for Tesco. So it's a very, pra- it, it doesn't always have to be, but it generally is a very practical thing. And in a business context, you know, your data scientist ideally should be bringing in value, right? Yeah, that's true. However, they however they help your bottom line, whether that's by generating more revenue or, or saving you costs or some other benefit, you know, should ideally equal out, if not exceed, what the what their cost is. But that's that's me getting a little bit specific there, right? I guess what I'm saying is, in a practical context, in a business or where you have an organization with clear objectives. Yeah. You know, ideally, your data science data scientists help you get achieve those objectives and answer questions around those objectives without getting too sidetracked. Um, you know, kind of just doing it for academic curiosity as opposed to a specific purpose. No, that makes sense. How did you become interested in data science? So that that happened as that happened as a means of transitioning away from my film career for reasons we, we might get into later. Yeah. Um, but one thing that always, well, one thing that kind of sparked an interest and stuck with me was talks that I'd seen from a guy called Hans Rosling. Okay. Uh, I, I believe he's passed away since, but um, very, you know, interesting, colorful chap um, was a statistician, I believe. And he, he, there was a 
TED talk he did where he talks about, I won't get into the ins and outs of the specifics, but he, one of the things he touched upon was this perception of poverty in the world and world hunger and these kind of issues. And he goes, you know, we have a perception of the world, but let's look at what the data says. Let's look at what, as best as we can ascertain, what is the record of reality? What's actually going on? And it was an optimistic thing because it's like our perception is one thing, but all the evidence we have so far is kind of pointing that things are generally getting better and have been getting better for quite some time. And of course, that's not to say we shouldn't strive to improve things where we can. Absolutely not. It doesn't mean we just sit on our ass and do nothing, but it does mean that it's not perhaps as doom and gloom as we think it might be. Now, for me, it wasn't so much the the optimism side of it. It was the idea that we have perceptions and and as I'm sure you've, you've, you kind of alluded to in our pre-chat, you know, people have perceptions about the world, about all kinds of things. Most definitely. But does the evidence, as best as we can, you know, gather the evidence in as unbiased a way as we can, does that necessarily back up what we think? And throughout life, recent life, my recent life, that's the question I've thought about quite a lot. You know, what is, you know, our perceptions of way, the way we think the world is and our narratives and the things we perhaps dogmatically adhere to no matter what versus, you know, a more kind of, well, what's what 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 has actually happened, right? What evidence do we have? And as looking at that in as kind of a dispassionate way as possible, does that really back up what we believe? Is it even relevant? So that that sparked, and in you know that's but that was like the initial kind of um, the impetus towards pursuing that field. Yeah. Um, which is which? So so kind of skipping to a little different segment. So the way I did that to, to go from film sets to mm. a data science career yeah. in finance is, is quite a big gap, right? On face value, the, the way I I decided I was going to try and do that transition was to do a master's degree. So I did a one-year master's degree in data science and machine learning um, to help transition, right? To sort of, you know, get some academic credentials, you know, because that's what people look for and, and that's what helps whether you agree with it or not you know whether you're a data scientist who, who's never been to university who sits at home and, and does really good work you know there's a game being played you can choose to play it you can choose not to play it. you can find different avenues i just chose one that that worked for me um so and then as i went through the master's degree um one of the, the interest one of the things that happened was you know i so I'd done statistics like most of us have done statistics to some degree at secondary school level. You know, you do your, your means, modes, your averages, that sort of thing. Um, some some of us might then do a bit more if we go into A level. Um, but, you know, I, I had a rudimentary understanding of statistics, a very basic understanding, a very mechanical understanding of statistics like, oh, yeah, this is what you calculate and this is how you can measure things and kind of predict things or you know get an idea of what's going on in the world but it was actually at the master's level statistics took on a whole completely different meaning um and the way i would say i view statistics now is it's a, it's more a philosophy than it is unfortunately the very boring subject that most people think it is which i can totally get if it's put across in a very droll and very mechanical way and you just want to get past those exams i totally get that but the the you know, the lecturers we had on my master's course really did open a door for me as to like statistics is an attempt. Well, for me, and maybe some of my friends who might listen to this 
somewhere down the line might cringe but um statistics really uh, it, it, for me it's a lens a way of viewing the world that truly tries to accept the world for what it is and what i mean by what it is is i mean it's inherently unpredictable to a degree right we, we don't know a lot with certainty we don't you know i, I step out on the road what might happen next? Yeah, there, there's certain odds on what might happen next, but there's there's, a, there's an inherent uncertainty of the world. And so statistics is saying, yeah, the world's uncertain. Let's try and figure out some understanding of that and maybe some tools we can use to navigate that. And certain uh, statistics introduced me more to the idea of doubt and the limitations of what we can know. And eventually that then further led on to a personal study and a continuing personal study of uh, philosophy um, and various philosophical thinkers, which I found so far very fulfilling um, and very interesting because for me, various philosophers have actually tried to tackle the big, big questions, right? Whether whether you feel they succeeded or failed or managed to uncover something new or something useful, you know, that's always up for debate. But those 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 guys and girls, you know, they, they're trying to tackle the really big questions. They're not necessarily just trying to say, oh, you know, it's all like this and it's fine and just don't think. You know, that's yeah, fine. Just move on. It's like, you know, we all have a, I guess we all to some degree or another have moments in life where we start to wonder about, you know, the big questions or what is the meaning of it all to put a yeah, kind of tropey, tropey example on yeah. it. Right. But um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. It's kind of warped into this whole other thing. Um, yeah. Again, kind of got off on a little bit of a ramble there, but hopefully that's, that's answered your question. In well, some no, shape most definitely. The more knowledge you you bring to the table, the more people will understand exactly what you do because there are people out there who do want to do what you do, even if they're in the background because most of the time you guys are in the background rather than being in the forefront of things and you're giving the data which is making the company excel. But people don't know about you guys uh, as much as the people in the front who are representing the company. I don't know if you agree or disagree with it, but um, you might have a, a different aspect on things. When it comes yeah, to that. I mean, so the field data science is is off is quite strongly linked and kind of interspersed with machine learning, mm. and then machine learning is is kind of very strongly linked and interspersed with AI, and all these terms are used often very interchangeably. Now, AI, artificial intelligence, is a term that's kind of that has come more to the fore as we see in popular culture, right? You know, from from the talk about oh gosh we got to worry about ai it's going to take over and destroy us all to you see it all the time right you know google using ai for this facebook using ai for that and tesla and everybody else and yada 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 and again i've got views on on a personal level i i think that's a lot of the perception that there's these well, first and foremost i will say that the that kind of language is used so often in media that it would not surprise me if if a random person down the street thinks we've actually got real thinking machines that are like humans. Why? But that's not true. We we don't have anything even remotely close to a sentient thinking machine. The AI algorithms that are often talked about in the media is one of the things I studied on my masters. They are still very dumb algorithms sometimes they can do very impressive things but there is nothing thinking nor sentient about them so um i don't even know why i said that kind of, kind of riled something up in no, me it's but good. Um, i like it I, to, to, to link it back um i guess yeah you know 
the people working on these kind of problems and doing these things in businesses, yeah, you, if you're if you're just a layperson, you might not be aware of them, but you certainly are aware of their work. I think just through all the all the things that come up in in popular culture and the media every so often about this, oh, there's an algorithm that can pick out these faces, and there's an algorithm AI that can do this, do this or do that, and da 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 da. I'm not always saying it's very accurately reported, and I'm, I said yeah, I'm saying there is an element of of sensationalism and misunderstanding. Um, yes, but yeah, you could argue the work of people like that uh, does come to the fore. To use some more specific examples, Google's DeepMind uh, division, they often get a bit of press. You know, Google DeepMind plays Go and beats all the all the world's masters and stuff and that algorithm and playing chess and other stuff like that. So there is, I think, a general kind of public awareness of this thing called AI and machine learning. Even, of course, you know, they, they, they won't fully grasp maybe what it is. And I'm not blaming them for that. I'm saying, you know, you just read the headlines and read what the journalists write and you've kind of formed an opinion. But there's some notion that companies are using this technology for various purposes and means. How do you handle missing data? So say, for instance, you're doing something, but you know something isn't right. You know there's data missing. How do you yeah. handle that process? There's... there's Numerous different techniques of how you might do that. Um, so I won't go too much into the ins and outs, but I'll, I'll mention, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example that hopefully is somewhat intuitive. So I don't know, let's say you've got data on a bunch of, you know, you have a shop or some retail business and you have data on a bunch of customers, you know, people who signed up to your loyalty program or whatever have you, right? And, you know, there's, you know, age, gender, other bits and pieces like that um actually maybe this is not particularly great i don't know let's just say you have a okay let's step back from the retail example because you need to so let's just say you have some you have a bunch of data which contains the physical characteristics of people right so like you know hair color eye color height weight that sort of thing right w whatever that database might be maybe it's a medical thing maybe you're in a hospital but the specifics of what, where the database is coming from aren't that relevant. And let's say, for example, so you, you, know, you for each person, you have all these different physical attributes. And let's say, um, I don't know, for every so often, somebody's weight is missing. So you might say, well, okay, I, I want to do some statistical analysis on this or do some other kind of task. And whatever that task is I'm, I want to do, I need to fill in, I, I need to get those missing values for weight filled in. So there's numerous different approaches, right? A very simple thing to do would be to say, well, if I don't know the weight of someone, let me just take the average of all the weights and stick that in. And you can do that. Let me take the most common value for weight. Stick that in. You can do that. You might try and do something a bit more informed, right? If you have someone who, you know, let's say, I don't know, let's say the average weight of everybody in that data set was, I don't know, let's say 60 kilograms and you have a row for a eight-year-old child, 60 kilograms might be possible, but it might seem like it's a bit high or something, you know, so, oh, maybe I actually want to, if, if I know if, you know, what is the average weight or the median weight, if you want to use the median, there are reasons to do that. But let's, let's say I, I use the average weight f based on um, gender and, um, you know, the, the age range that might be a bit more informed. There are, so you can do something very hands-on. You can also use, there's, there, there's other techniques. One I've used in the past is, is the acronym for it is MICE, 
which I've been a while since I've looked into it, so I don't know the ins and outs, but that is an algorithm which tries to do a very thought-through process of imputing missing data. Um, to be fair, sometimes if you have a particular data set, you might decide, you know what, for every row, for, for every data point which has some missing data associated with it, I'll just leave them out. That's that's also a valid approach, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think I had that true. discussion once with with someone or like a job interview I once had years ago. You know, someone said, oh, you know, what would you do with this? I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try this, this, and this. It goes, okay, well, that's reasonable. But like, what if I told you it's 100 million rows of data and I told you that 100 of them have missing values? You might just leave them out, right? I was like, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, in any analysis you do, it, I... I I would say it's absolutely important you record every step you do very, very clearly, you know, exactly what it is you're doing. So because all of those decisions can absolutely influence where you where you end up at, at the end with any analysis and analyses or conclusions you draw. So always be very cognizant of the decisions you make um, and never be afraid to revisit them or, or question them yourself. Okay. What is the biggest data set that you've processed and how did you process it? And what was the results as well? Uh, I mean, there's there's data sets at my work which are hundreds of billions, probably hundreds of, yes, without a doubt, hundreds of billions of rows. I don't generally go across all of that. You'd often go across a subset. Um, that this particular kind of data, it's it's a time series. So it's about, you know, things happen at points in time. So, oh, this happened at this moment, this happened at this moment. And with each moment, there's a bunch of values you record and that forms a time series database, right? So it's just data moving through time. There's a, I would go further and say all data is time series, but that's a discussion maybe for another time. But it, yeah, let's just say this is time, so this is time series data. Um, in terms of processing that, when you, you, you're looking at, you know, hundreds of millions over a billion rows in one particular chunk, the we have tech, we, we use databases and technologies at my work, which can make that very, very fast. So I don't, so far, I haven't had to do anything too crazy to deal with large amounts of data like that. Um, we have databases which are designed for that kind of data, which are extremely quick for that sort of work. Very impressively so. Um, but I sometimes, yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll write, a, I'll try to ask a question of the database and that query does take quite a bit of time to run. And I need to think about how do I ask the question in a different way or structure it in a different way to try and get the answer quicker without actually changing the question I'm answering, but simply asking it of the database in a way that the database can optimize and run more quickly. So yeah, so there's there's things you can do like that, or maybe you can break the problems into chunk. I haven't run into a situation where, oh, my query takes days to run, yeah. but I have friends in other, other businesses, some very well-known businesses, you would know the names, I'm not going to mention them, but who do have similarly large data sets, but maybe of a slightly different form. And, you know, they will run queries of that database. And there is a little thing to say, oh, hey, you know, your query took like two hours, three hours to run several days a week. Um, maybe there's things you can do to optimize that. So they're always constantly trying to optimize or ask their questions in certain ways that kind of gets the answer, answer back quicker. So there are different 
yeah, when when you get into the realm of large data, right, there are many different databases and technologies you can use to store that data in, each with their own pros and cons. Um, a lot of them obviously do try to be quick for big queries. Yeah. You know, the whole big data database paradigm. Um, so things are done on a, on a technological level to mean that your computer can, you know, the computers can process that query very fast. But there is no real one one to rule them all solution, right? It kind of depends on the kind of data you're storing, um, the sort of queries of that database you think you're going to ask. So for my use case at work, where the vast majority of the data we deal with is time series data, um, we have a technology solution in place for that, which is very common across finance. It's a KDB database. So anyone who's familiar with finance and that kind of world will know what I'm talking about. You, you Anyone can look it up. We use KDB and that allows us to work with um, huge, huge time series very, very quickly. Wow. It sounds like so much information. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very cognizant. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm very aware of that. Yeah, no, it sounds like, but you, I, I don't know how this is going to come across, but it is a compliment anyway, but you must have a magnificent mindset when it comes to processing all this data yourself. And although you may turn around to me and say, it's not a job that everybody thinks is fantastic, it, it must be satisfying to know that your brain is able to work in the way that it does to make these things happen for the company itself. Yeah. Um, although I will say that, and this is something I've, I've spent many years thinking about because aside of having worked as an architectural model maker and having worked in film and now working as a data scientist, I also spelt, spent time as a teacher, believe it or not. You, there's a pattern emerging, right? I've done a few different things. <laughs> I mean, like, um, so I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how people develop skills, right? Or how they can learn things, you know, are there inherent blockers or traits that lead people down one path or another? Um, and I am currently of the view that almost anything can be learned by anyone. Um, so yeah, in my case, I'm used to breaking down problems into kind of smaller chunks and then tackling them and bring them together and, and able to think several steps in sort of a, for technological tasks, right? You know, you've got, let's say you've got, oh, I want to get from A to B. I need to write some computer code to do that. Yeah, generally I can go, okay, well, I need to do da 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 da, -da join them together, play around with it, and da da da. I, I, I have seen people sometimes struggle to do that. Um, however, I contend that that is not me inherently like oh I'm um I you know you, oh you're a numbers person you, you you're an analytical person you know you, you're you're more an empath da, da, da. no I've just got a shitload more <laughs> experience doing that than you have so and and believe me um there's very little in this life that I think has come to me easy or naturally yeah um, I, I can see that can, by I, your passion I, I, I can absolutely tell you this without a shadow of a doubt right so. Yeah, the the radio control flying, I used to do an absolute shitload of. I was so immersed in that and I loved it so much. You just get better at it because you're doing it so much, right? Um, but 
my my degree in aeronautical engineering so i'll tell you what people used to see people used to see me come into tutorials right so you know you have the lecturers run the lecture then they might give you some questions and they're like all right well based on what we've done in this lecture try and answer these questions um to help develop your understanding or whatever blah 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 and there will be like an hour session at some point in time called a tutorial where you can go into and you can ask either the lecturer or one of their PhD students or research associates questions about this material, right? What a fair number of people would do is they would only tackle those questions at the tutorial itself. You've got an hour's worth of time. You've got maybe 10, 15, 20 students in there, maybe one or two people on hand to help you answer it. So they'd start doing the questions and by the time they start to get to the more difficult material, time was up, they're running out of time. It was always kind of an unfinished thing. What did people see? What what did people observe from the outside when, when I walked into the room? Um, they saw me arrive. They saw me usually be one of the first people to have questions to, to ask about the material that we'd been provided, have a conversation with either the lecturer or one of their, you know, PhD students or research associates, right? and leave within about 15, 20 minutes into the one hour session. They would then see me, they would then experience me in conversation. Like they would ask me questions and I would go, Oh yeah, yeah. it's like da 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 from their perception. Oh, this guy, he just, he just gets it right. He's just, he's just a natural. He's just, he just knows aeronautical engineering bullshit, right? Complete and utter bullshit. What was happening was I'd, 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 the lecture would happen. I'd try to dive into those questions straight away. I'd slam my head against a desk repeatedly. I wouldn't understand this. I wouldn't understand that. I would try and work my ass off. So when it came to the tutorial, I would like, well, I've already done this, this, and this. I get this, this, and this, but I don't understand these last two things. Can you help me out? So I was just kind of completing my understanding in those tutorials. I was constantly trying to stay one step ahead yeah. because there was a you got like 40 hours of lectures a week and it's all difficult, challenging material. I was working my ass off. I had plenty of moments of self-doubt, plenty of moments of like, man, this is really difficult. Da, 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 da. Even though my grades were working out and I was kind of on track, everything was going well in that guard. You still experience that doubt, right? You still, it's we a challenge, do. right? You know, yeah. you don't even know. Yeah. So people had this perception of me. And I can understand why that perception was there. What people don't see is they don't see everything that happens when no one's watching, right? I, I can't remember who it was who said that. I'm not saying I'm a champion, but, you know, champion, something to do with boxing maybe or something like that. But, you know, it's it's all the work you do in the gym and the training. It's that last moment, you know, that when you actually get in the ring, people see this wonderful performance. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this person's, yeah, but you don't see all the, all the work they're doing when no one's watching, right? That's often what the make or break is. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that all came from obviously what you're asking me about, you know, the way I think, the way I'm able to break down certain problems in certain work contexts, you know, whether that's a database query. Yeah, honestly, I'm a big believer in, you, you know, anyone can make it with the right mindset and putting in the work. I don't generally subscribe to the idea of gifted and talented which I know is a thing in the in, in the uh, education system as we have it now. I think that can actually be quite a damaging thing if you tell someone, if you tell someone all the time, "Oh wow, you're really gifted. You're really gifted. You're really talented." Somewhere down the line, that might manifest itself as 
they just have this idea that, oh, I can do it all without putting the work in. And that comes back to bite them really hard later on when actually the going gets tough and they have to put the, the hard work in, it ain't there. And somebody who just put in the grind beats them to the pip, right? Or, 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 or not even necessarily competitive sense, but people then get to a point when the work really starts and they quit. I agree with you there. But yeah. So, and I've seen this in various different avenues, right? I've seen it in both academic context. I've seen it in various things I've done in my life up to this point, you know, competitive contexts that somebody might be really good at something just off the bat. But I, you know, when I was doing, uh, like for example, when I was doing loads of the radio controlled flying stuff and going to competitions on the world stage, either as a competitor or as a judge towards the end, um, you know, I was, it was great. You know, a lot of the, some of the best radio control pilots in the world, I got to know very well as friends. And the common theme amongst people who are literal multiple world champions, some of them who rewrote the rule book on how these competitions are tackled, right? Incredible, incredible people. Stupid number of hours. Like, you know, ridiculous number of training and practice and grit, right? It, there was there was no one there who just like yeah just do it once in a while and i win everything nah never happened my view on on the idea of innate gifts or innate talent is that and you know in in the spirit of trying to be philosophical about life in general you know I'm, i will put the disclaimer in this view may be subject to change and fine okay it may be subject to change somewhere down the line i might say something different but right now at this point in time if somebody appears to have a knack or like just they find something a bit easier the first time they do it than other people other people might struggle a bit this person just kind of gets it that could be just chance right just like you know before you learn to drive you might ha you have a conceptual idea of what it's like to use a clutch what it's like to change gears what it's like to accelerate decelerate how the car might feel someone might just happen to have guessed it pretty close to the right way and that cuts out a lot of the crap early on but that doesn't necessarily mean that that they were born to drive right or that somebody else who didn't have that good guess the first time round doesn't get to that same point and then perhaps because they have a certain attitude and a way to doing things an yeah. idea of taking a step back from their efforts and able to really analyze what they can do better in a very honest way doesn't actually go on to do a lot more later on no, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> How do you feel like technology has evolved since when you first started working with it to how it has become in 2020 now? Do you feel like it has enhanced the way you do things within the company or do you feel like it has hindered? Um, I don't know if I... It's, it's not something I actually think about often. So how has technology evolved? Especially um, within what you do. To be fair, and like what, I guess if anything, I've, I guess if anything, what I've, where I'm at right now, it feels like technology actually isn't as used as much as people might think it is, and I, I, I can, yeah, I, I can give you a very specific kind of example of that. It's interesting to me, like how many people day to day in their jobs do things which could easily be automated. And I'm not talking fancy AI algorithm. I'm like really simple stuff, right? Like, you know, rather than you opening a spreadsheet, typing a bunch of things in there, you could actually do a lot of automation. So I, I think actually technology in a really basic way isn't used to its fullest extent. Um, 
So quite, quite, quite the contrary. I mean, how has technology affected us in the wider context, right? In everyone's daily life? Well, yeah, we've all seen the rise of the smartphone, right? The, the more interconnectivity and social media and all these other things. Um, do I think that's that has an impact? Yeah, I, I do think to a degree. I know every generation um, has our oh, you know, your kids watching TV, your brain's going to fall out your ears, right? And it's like now I'm now no, we're getting to the point of being the the angry old people. Oh, we didn't have the smartphones when we were kids. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> it, it could just be more of the same, right? Like, however, I so I mentioned I spent time in teaching. Yeah, I did get the impression, and again, you know, statistical philosophical disclaimer: it's it's only a sample size as I experienced it, right? So this is only based on my experiences. I don't know if this is a wider trend. You know, the question needs to be asked, the test needs to be done. But I did feel that. So at one point, I was working in year six, and I felt that the, some of these kids they just they had an inability to concentrate on stuff that seemed a bit much, and you know, they're all going home and interacting with their devices which is something I didn't do. And, you know, it's like, I, I don't know how much of an impact that has. Is, is that really, you know, it did feel that way that this could be something which truly is different because, yeah, TV might rot your brain, but you can't take a TV everywhere with you. Well, now you can on your phone, but, you know, TV as it was when we were growing up, you know, you, you sit down, you watch the TV, all right, you turn the TV off, you, you do something else. It's not constantly available for you to interact with. That's where I think the things are different now than they have been. Um, but technology, look, I, I don't take the view technology is inherently good or evil. It's just a thing, right? It's just a thing. Knives aren't good or evil. They're just a thing. I can try and cook a lovely meal using a knife. That's part of the process. Or you can commit a crime, right? Yeah. Um, technology true. has its uses to certainly alleviate us from certain things. I don't necessarily think it's the solution to everything. I think ultimately solutions to things have to come from within us as people, right? It's how we use yeah. things and, and, and interact with the world around us. Yeah, Full disclaimer. So I work in a technical field and I have certain level of technical experience, but actually generally in my day-to-day -day life, like I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I feel that I perceive that I'm relatively analog. So I don't like actually rely on, apps and stuff like this and other things that much even though i work as a data scientist like when i'm doing my fitness stuff i i actually don't record much of the data believe it or not um which is just like a thing for me it's like ah, oh, you know I, I can judge my progress across time in, in different ways I, so it's kind of yeah thing like that i'm not a technophobe but i i don't feel the need to do as much with technology and apps and other stuff as perhaps other people might as well or i use very simple methods to do that if you had, if I could ask you, if you could choose one quote that represents you as a person, what quote would you choose, and why would you choose oh, that boy. particular quote? Uh oh, <laughs> there are there are lots of different quotes. Oh, talk um, to me. There are lots, and sometimes I I got to tell myself off for like trying to converse with people in quotes. Right, it gets a bit, it seems a bit pretentious <laughs> at times. Um, uh. Let me let me look one up. So I, I've got a few to hand here. Okay. So you asked um, a you quote. Yeah. So, so yeah. To not not to say a quote fully defines a person or a thing, but yeah. I guess a quote, one quote, which resonates. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, there's 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 a few, right? But I'll, I'll pick one here. Um, just get some water down me. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here it goes. Yeah, to those human beings who are of any concern to me, I wish suffering, desolation, sickness, ill treatment, indignities. I wish that they should not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torture of self-mistrust, and the wretchedness of the vanquished. I have no pity for them, because I wish them the only thing that can prove today whether one is worth anything or not, that one endures. And that's from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Wow. I think that's one of the best quotes I've heard someone say, because everyone usually gives me just a line. <laughs> Whereas you've given me a paragraph. Oh, right. <laughs> no, which is good because you see things in a different way. You analyze things before you say it, I believe. And, uh, I sometimes try to, right? But we, yeah. we all sometimes it depends forget on the moment. what it is we're, yeah. we're trying to do at the same time. Yeah, yeah, sometimes it's the moment and we just become passionate about, or passionate, I should say, about what we're feeling and our emotions take over. Um, yeah. So then we just say what's from the heart and sometimes we don't always realise that what we're saying can offend or, uh, offend someone or do something to someone in a different way or in an emotional way. But yeah. um, I like that quote. That's something that must really will stick with me. Um, are there any companies that you admire yeah. that you would say you would like to work for because um, of the way that they do things in the terms of yeah, I I don't know if. I mean, there are companies with some some inspiring stories and stuff like this, but I guess I I. Sh not necessarily. I'd say it's actually more about people. So let me again qualify that somewhat. One of the things when I spent time in film, one of the things I came to appreciate, was. How you enjoy your work based on the people around you, so so so. I often worked in very harsh environments, right? Spent time in the jungle, 30 degrees plus, 100% humidity. Spent time on a ski slope, 2 a.m. in the morning, minus whatever. Spent a lot of time in the desert, 40, 45 plus degrees. Harsh environments, right? If the people around you on the set were a good bunch of folks, it didn't necessarily matter as much how hard the conditions were or how challenging that particular shoot was you kind of you had a laugh right you enjoyed it so if i was to put it a different way like you could be shoveling horse shit for a job but if you're having a laugh whilst you're doing it with the people it's not so bad and that's one of the things i sort of was aware of and and tried to look for to a degree when it came to transitioning from film world to you know office world uh, or corporate world i want to talk and about that I, more as well yeah we will absolutely but and I'm glad to say I have found that like the, the, the people I work with right now, you know, we get on very well and that's more important to me necessarily than the company itself. Yes. A company can absolutely influence a culture. Um, but I think in your immediate day-to-day -day surroundings, it's going to be the people that are around you, right. That really matter the most. Of course. Um, but I did think about your question when you posed it to me earlier, and I, I don't know if this qualifies right now as a, as a company traditional sense or not, but an but a organization which I've long just been blown away by, um, and it's kind of not well known you know, in the general public sphere, is Bell Labs. 
Um, and if one of my friends is listening to this down the line, he'll be smiling because we talk about Bell Labs often. Uh, but Bell Bell Labs um, was the you know the kind of the research division of the Bell Company, you know, which has its roots roots back. Um, and it's obscene the amount of inventions or technologies that have been discovered that have come out of Bell Labs that have shaped the modern era. It's uncanny. Like that, it's just this incredible place. The, the people that went through there, the work that came out the ground, like modern life would not be as it looks now were it not for Bell Labs. Just one, like there needs to be a Netflix, you know, series on this or something like that, right? It's just in, in a very interesting place. And, you know, if anyone gets a chance, I, I recommend look it up and look at the kind of accomplishments or, or the things that came out of Bell Labs, the inventions that came out of Bell Labs and the work that was done in Bell Labs. Um so yeah, I, yeah, I'm definitely going to look it up. Go check it out. <laughs> tell me a little bit. Now we've spoken about it briefly just a second ago. So tell me the transition between the film to where you are now. Sure. So I, I guess in order to maybe get more of a handle on the transition, it makes yeah. sense to talk about how I ended up in film because at this point in the conversation, that's still unknown. So I... Yeah, I did my three years aeronautical engineering. Um, I graduated, uh, started applying for jobs, just, you know, didn't really have a strong idea. Funnily enough, I didn't actually want to go into aeronautical engineering. Uh, I'd kind of got a bit disillusioned with it as I'd been working, as I've been doing the degree for various reasons. I didn't, wasn't at that point sure it was really what I wanted to do was to go and go into the industry as an engineer. Good friends of mine of the course did pursue that some went into various forms of engineering i do sometimes miss it or like oh you know that's cool would be nice to work on that but you know it is what it is and it's it's all good so i actually spent a brief spell working for what i got into and i worked for a sales company an it sales company and i was actually on the third week of their training program or the, the final week of their training program so they were training us up and they put us up in a hotel near the headquarters um, for about yeah two to three weeks where we were getting trained up. And I was, I was sitting on the loo, right, in the hotel room. And I, I get a call, or I think it was a text message, uh, off of one of the guys from my university. And uh, he'd ended up after uni so so he was actually a year ahead of me but we were in the same halls he ended up um working as then as a trainee cameraman for a small outfit uh, for a small like little little rental house slash crew right um and they had a drone and they bought the drone but they weren't too sure about how to operate it or, or how to you know get it working and and get some work out of it now so he knew um he knew me he, we were good friends at university and he knew i did a lot of the radio control flying stuff because i always had that stuff lit around my room so he was well aware of that was something i did um so he, he messaged me he says hey yeah how's it going blah blah you know we've got this this drone we we i think maybe you can figure out how this thing works and and to get it flying would you be interested in giving us a hand i was like that sounds insane and awesome um but I'm actually doing, I'm in the middle of a full-time job right now. So this sucks, but yeah, I, I, maybe I can chat with you a little bit here and there, but I, you know, as something that could lead to work and stuff, I've got a full-time job. Sorry. 
to cut a to cut the story a little bit shorter, I didn't stay long in that the job I was training for. Uh, so when I quit, I immediately contacted him and said, Hey, is that thing still going? Like, is that office still up? Like, do you still need someone to help you out with your drone? And he goes, yeah, maybe let me find out. One thing led to another. So I, I helped, I, I took this drone, I got it working. I test flew it and da -da -da and checked out a bunch of things on it, made some modifications, right. And got it to a point where it could go out and it could work on film job, uh, film and TV jobs and make them money. Um, and they asked me to fly it. So did all that, got like at that point, how the licensing was done, did all of that and stuff. So I'm kind of flying, I'm, I'm, I'm going out onto like odds and sods, like different little TV jobs here and there, right? You know, aerial, aerial pickup shots and this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. Um, which at the time was like, oh, mine was blown. This is awesome. It's like, oh, I'm getting to, I'm getting to do something I'm really into. I'm being paid to do it. Um, there's a little bit of travel involved, you know, going around the UK. That's quite cool. Um, this is, this is awesome, right? This is like, you know, and, and, you know, it's not like a nine to five, right? It's kind of different and you can, you know, all really good, like super excited, 22 years old, you know, can't believe I've landed this thing. So that in itself, that whole, how I got into that was very serendipitous, right? It's kind of luck and coincidence. And, but at that time it was, it was more TV based work. Um, it gets even more serendipitous as to how I then transitioned to more film-based work and more international and larger productions. Uh, I was can't remember what, exactly what the date was, but I remember I, I one of those weird things that just line up, right? Uh, I got up one day a little bit earlier than I than I've been getting up just by chance, right? So I got up and I was awake having breakfast and so i was awake so i was able to answer my phone so i got a i got a call from a random number i'd never seen before picked it up it was a producer on a on a shoot in london um saying oh hey i was given your contact details by xyz uh i know you do work for blah 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 and and like we have we have a drone on set but it's crashed uh, we need someone who can fill in very, very short notice as in the next few hours. Could you do it? So I just happened to be awake to get the call. Great. Um, the drone was with me, fully charged, ready to go. All the things like, yeah, yeah, okay, let's go do it. So packed it all up, got to the, got to the location. Um, very, really windy day. It's kind of crazy. But the guys who had had the, incident, the drone crash were there and I was kind of talking with them and stuff. They're like, oh, where'd you get that drone? Who built it? I did really. Yeah. Oh, you built it. Yeah. And I was flying it and stuff. And it's like, look, they said, you know, we, we've got this crash thing. We want you to fix it for us. And maybe we like the way you fly and maybe you can start flying for us. And that's where things really started to spiral. And that was, uh, about middle of 2013 within. So I got that drone. I fixed it up within like, I'd say a month of meeting them or a month and a half. And I'd done a fair bit of work of getting the drone ready. They were already talking about, Oh, there's a film film job coming up for like this or a TV job coming up for this in like parts of the world. I'd never even bloody been to. So it's like, Whoa, really? Like this was a bit crazy. Right. And it just, it completely spiraled from there, you know, been to many different countries, worked for feature film, worked on feature films, nature documentaries, music videos all around the world some high profile stuff, things I couldn't have even begin to imagine in my wildest dreams that I'd be doing, you know, we did. Yeah. Um, and it sounds all very rosy and wonderful, but I will absolutely tell you that there were plenty of points 
at, at during my time in film and TV as a, as the drone guy, where it was yeah, eighty nowadays, right? Mm. Like the 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 that's a like long time. Seriously, shitty working conditions, extremely stressful, dangerous at times. Um, you know, you really got to look after yourself. You know, the, one of the first bigger jobs that I did, I was in another part of the world, you know, completely. Um, and, you know, we turned up, we flew in with, 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 uh, so the drones were operated as two people, right? So I, I would fly the drone. So I would physically put it, you know, in the air where it need to be yeah. a separate person would point the camera. So it's kind of like this, if you ever seen the film Pacific Rim, where, like the two minds melt, it's like that, like, it's kind of like that. We can get into more of what that means in a moment, but yeah. In that particular job, you know, I spent five days on that job. In that five days, I slept eight hours total. What? Which when you're operating a newly built drone with a 20, 30,000 pound plus camera with a 10,000 pound lens on it, you know, in a completely unknown environment, you know, it's crazy. And like fatigue, I've never experienced before. So there were incredible highs, incredible lows. We were one of the first people to fly one of the very, very, I think one of the first people to fly a red dragon carbon which would just come out like a super light version of the of the red dragon camera we did that at off a ski slope in austria which was ten thousand feet altitude which another well-known film crew another well-known drone crew had turned down because they said it well we're not sure that's possible it's the only time i've ever used my aeronautical engineering degree people always make that natural jump oh you did a degree in aeronautical engineering like you know designing planes and stuff that must obviously be used by your drone flying it's like no actually the majority of the drone work has come from me doing radio control planes as a hobbyist um but the only actual time I've actually used my degree was to, to calculate, can this drone fly at this altitude yeah. in these air conditions and have enough lift to lift this camera up safely? It's the only time I've ever <laughs> explicitly used my degree. But we did that. We did. Um, we were the, amongst the first, if not really the first, to fly two red cameras together. So you put two red cameras together side by side, you yeah. can shoot 3D. Now, I know at the time there was another crew who done something so we'd seen video of a drone flying red cameras but it wasn't on a production whereas we had to go out and do this in the middle of the jungle for two weeks uh which found its which made the final cut it's you know was shown in imax and blah blah and that kind of stuff so i was very so very fortunate to have done some incredible things but there were also lots of periods of doubt and struggle and very difficult conditions and a lot of learning I guess, right. You know, the yeah. highs and lows and, and, you know, I learned a lot about what a good, a good leader looks like because the, the, the leader on set is a director, you know, what's a good director versus a bad director. Well, you know, a leader leads from the front, a bad leader pushes from behind. Right. Yes, and that's some true. of the best yeah. directors I work with is 40, 45 degree heat in the desert. And they're out there in that heat with, with the camera shooting, you know, they're not sitting in an air conditioned tent, which is what some of them did sit in an air conditioned tent in the middle of a 40 degree desert, barking orders over a, a of a walkie talkie. And it's interesting how much of what I learned in film, I've actually taken to the office or the office and corporate environment, right? It's all about people. People always talk to ask me, what was film like? It's all about people. It's all about getting on with people. And in the end, you kind of hope that when the shoot is over and everything is wrapped, you've created a story with other people and that is a wonderful feeling you're telling stories you're telling stories and you're telling stories work doing it with other people like working with other people to create something you know larger than each of your individual selves um so very glad i was a part of that what led me to transition 
out of that towards the end um so yeah i make it all sound very good and very interesting but it was incredibly predictable work right like you could so some of the biggest most high profile jobs i've done you know you pack your bags you come home you put your feet up and the phone doesn't ring for two three months uh, it, it's just like that, right? I'm sh- I know you've had other people on the podcast. You've probably said very similar things. Extremely volatile, right? You you, you know, so you don't know where the, ne- where the next paycheck is coming from. You don't really know what's going on. Um, that was a big factor in me trying to go, well, you know, do I want to get to the point when, you know, 10 years, 10, 15 years down the line, this could all dry up really bad, just of my, not of my own accord. And I've got nothing to fall back on. So that was sort of the start of me thinking, you know, and, you know, I I knew a guy who had actually won an Oscar for technical achievements. So not, you know, the Oscars actually is a bigger thing. So you, you, you get Oscars for all the technical side and the crew as well. The only guy I know who's ever won an Oscar for flying radio controlled aircraft like drones. He wasn't, doesn't fly drones, flows actually little radio control helicopters, but been doing it longer than any any of the new school like myself were right you've been doing it for way longer incredible bloke you know even he was struggling to find work at points it's like well shit if it can happen to someone like him with a huge huge credit roll you know it can happen you know to anyone and then there were other things going on at that point in time uh which kind of got me thinking that you know i i don't want to necessarily stay with this for now I can always, I guess, go back to it. Film is not something you have to do 24-7 to be a part of it, which is something we might touch on a bit later, cause sort of stuff I'm doing now outside of work and the rest of the things. But yeah, that, that was kind of the big sort of impetus. And, you know, I had, at that point, I was sort of four, four years and a bit into the game, you know, and all my a lot of people around me who kind of chosen, you know, the path more trodden, who'd gone into careers and stuff like that. I was immediately becoming envious of and comparing myself to, and and that led to a lot of self doubt and a lot, a very difficult time in my life was sort of having to step away from film and not knowing what the future might hold and, and having a whole am- amount of self doubt. Right. And, uh, very, very dark time. And I, I would describe it as, Imagine what it's like to have absolutely no hope for the future. Well, that that was toward the end. That's that's what I had, right? I, I wasn't sure what was going to come next. But, you know, here I am now. So there's something in that, right? It's like, you know, who was I at the age of 20, uh, 28 years old? No experience in finance whatsoever or a corporate environment, right? Um, who was trying to break into finance, you know, I always felt like I'm such an outsider, such an outsider. And yet, yet here I am, right? You know, I'm going to very much condense it, but did the masters, you know, met people in there who were very encouraging and stuff like this and, and, and found a way in. So if, if I can transition from a film career to a technical job in finance, then, then that's one way of illustrating, you know, there are perceptions of the world and then there are what you can actually do. And, and it's, it's amazing what people do do when you just stop adhering to narratives um, about yourself. I know people who have spent, like one of my good friends, 
during my time in film, who was often my camera operator on a lot of the drone shoots I did, who had more experience in film than me. So he was kind of helping me out with that. And I was learning from him and he was learning from me about drones. He becomes since a very, very close friend. He came out of film um, around about the same time I did for similar sort of reasons. He's now in medical school in, you know, he's now studying to be, you know, a doctor without any of the proper prerequisites because he found a way in. And, and he's doing that, right? And he's like, you know, wow, you know, a guy at that point in his life doing that. Yeah, fuck it. Like, it shouldn't be allowed, but it is. It does happen. You know, there's perceptions and reality about what you can achieve. What would you say to someone who is going into a, a similar field like you? So if someone is going into data science and they're just starting, what advice would you give them to keep going? Because as you've just said, you've had ups and you've had downs. But what would you say to someone who is just starting to get into data science? What advice would you give them to tell them to keep going? I guess I guess you could say that's 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 more generally for anything, any endeavor that someone chooses to pursue, right? Yeah. How do you cope with the doubt? Uh, yeah, I mean gosh it's something you know something though i have familiarity with, trying to kind of encapsulate it that's uh it's an interesting proposition so i guess i mean i, mean, I guess first of all really understand what is motivating you, you know why are you what are you why are you doing what you're doing and be very honest about those reasons you know, for me, transitioning to data science to pursue a career in, in something, you know, an office-based environment in finance, completely different, very specific things, right? I wanted to pick up a skill set that would give, you know, would mean that I didn't have all my eggs in one basket. You know, I, I haven't spoken about it much in here, but I've always kind of, I did explore careers in finance previously, hence why I've ended up here now. Um data science seemed like a natural thing to do because it's very was very much in demand i had a curiosity about it statistics in more general you know and it built upon some technical acumen i had from my own auckland so so things kind of you know meshed together to take me in that direction but there's a very clear purpose behind it right it's like transition out of film get into you know a career that's that's hopefully much more stable generally uh, provides you with a skill set you can fall back on you know, and can give you some sort of career progression and meet the objectives that, that you want to meet and do the things you want to do. So I, I guess if anyone's experiencing doubt, I mean, one of the things I would first is like, what, truly, what it is, why is it you're doing what you're doing? And don't lie to yourself about that, right? And don't give me some cliche bullshit answer, like follow your passion, which I think is terrible advice, but generally, by the way, um, like really, you know, get to the heart of what it is you're doing understand there's going to be difficult periods of self-doubt maybe just for that one day back off a little bit maybe that day you need to push through there's no i guess in listening to myself speak there is no silver bullet right there is i don't think i don't think there's a silver bullet because if i if i was i'd probably be saying it but then we could refer to my nietzsche quote earlier yeah. which is that one endures right you know he's talking about profound you know self-mistrust and the rest of it it's a normal it's a normal part of being in life you know it's it's something we all experience um give it your best bloody shot basically yeah if you can if you can if you've if you've tried to do something and you've 
fallen short, but you can look back at your efforts and say, you know what? I gave it a bloody good run. Yeah. I didn't leave anything in the field. It just didn't work out. You know, that can be quite a liberating thing. It's worse when you know that you could have maybe done a bit more, maybe tried something else. It's also perfectly fine to get to a point of failure in an endeavor and say, you know, what? actually, maybe I was never like, if you can honestly, genuinely look back and go, I was never really into the idea anyway. I kind of like, well, I like the idea, but I was never actually truly into that thing, right? Like, you know, we all like the idea of, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. But, but I kind of say, and it seems a bit harsh, you know, if you truly want to do something, you'll go out and do it fine but you might discover in that process actually that that thing isn't for me and that's okay too i think so in the last like couple of years i've um i i kind of have like a sort of self-created framework or a lens a way of framing human you know the human experience in the day-to-day right so what does that mean so you could argue that everything that we do has some unknown and it is unknown. Really. I mean, we can get close to it, but generally unknown probability of going in our favor or not. Right. So if you, if you're trying to, if you're trying to get to some point, right, you want to get from point A to point B, you can, you know, starting at point A, all right, well, what are the different routes to path B? Which one do I think is the most likely? Okay. Let, let's, it's reasonable if i think it, if i think it's going to be this let's give that a shot through my own actions i can also try to improve my odds right that's how we interact with the world by improving our odds you know let's let's say in in all the steps to get me from point a to point b maybe that's got a 10% chance of success or a 90% chance of success i don't really know but let's say let's take example it has a 90% chance of success i'm having everything bang on right and I, I didn't, I didn't get to that point B. But I guess what I'm trying to make the distinction here is, that's not necessarily a, a reason to beat yourself up. But only if and if, like only if, in your absolute coldest, most honest and like critique of yourself, which I, sometimes people struggle to do, but only with that, if you look at every step you took and say, you know what, I gave it my best bloody shot, and you know what, I just fell up short. That that's fine. Um, I don't even know where I'm going with all this. It's just something I kind of view. It's how I kind of navigate, try to navigate things, right? If we build, if we take another idea from like a related idea, I think people generally, they, I, I, also sounds a bit preachy to it, isn't it? I think people this, I think people that. Okay, well, I'm trying. I'm not trying to be. Believe me, but no, you have an opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's you fair enough. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always, always, always try to be open to it being challenged by all means. But I think there's sometimes an in, a contradiction, this in this below the level contradiction in people, in that they say people want to believe in the power, like to change whatever it is they want to change, right? Whether it's changing themselves or like, yeah, I, I believe I can do this if I just do that right i i want the power i want to have the power to make the world what i want it to be you know my environment my reality around me people say that all the time right but i think below the surface that's not always the case because the quote i think it was spider-man's uncle no was it spider yeah might have been spider-man's uncle uh, with great power comes great responsibility right if you if if you say you want 
want to do, you know, you, you, you want the power, like, or, you know, you say you have power to do all these things with that comes, comes great. You know, the responsibility is on you, right? The onus is on you to do the actions, to do the things, right? You know, don't expect the world to change in your favor or don't expect things just to happen to you, right? You know, get off your ass and do them. But in that, you also have to accept the responsibility for it. And so I think sometimes what happens is this contradiction. People say, yeah, I'm going to go try this, this, and this. And when it doesn't work out, they immediately blame everybody else or everything else. That's the now. Pardon? Denial. When somebody yes. is in denial. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, and then it's like, no, it's like, I'm not saying it's all one way or the other. I'm not saying that we have absolute power to change everything. And I'm not saying that we are completely powerless. It's somewhere in between. I think things are somewhere in between, right? And and it's kind of, for me, at least for me, it's only been through experience and continued experience where it's like well how do you know how do you know when you could have done more how do you know when you just got unlucky well you don't really but you just try to navigate your way through life with this kind of thing um and it helps it helps i have no idea where i was going with any of that by the way it doesn't even matter because it made sense anyways (laughs) oh good oh good (laughs) it made sense so i've only got one more question for you uh, because of time unfortunately but where can we find you on all your social medias and all your, like, say, for instance, your, your Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, um, if I people want to get in contact so with you. The, yeah, no Facebook, no Instagram, no social media whatsoever. The only thing I have is is a LinkedIn profile. Um, just because that's, that's the world, that's part of the world I inhabit, right? You know, the professional network. So I guess if somebody does want to find me, that that's, that's, that's a way to do it. But you won't find me on twitter or facebook or any of that stuff at least least not right now maybe that's a good thing (laughs) perhaps yeah yeah again it's 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 just a choice it's a personal choice with reasons behind it of Um, course so yeah well that makes sense i want to thank you so much for coming on the us people podcast the knowledge that you have brought to this episode has been immense and i know for a fact that when people listen to this if they don't walk away with some kind of knowledge they're lying (laughs) so Thank oh. you. It's very kind. No, and thank and thank you for having me as well. Um, yeah, it's just sort of came completely out of the blue, um, but it's been really good fun being on here and, and to have the conversation we've had. So thank you again. No, you're most welcome. I've really enjoyed it because you've told me so many things that I didn't understand, or you have. <laughs> no, it's good because sometimes people have a different outlook on life and things yep. that happen to them, whereas you have your outlook on things on life. And sometimes you don't realise how much you actually have in common with someone. Yes, it's very true. And even if you don't know them. So, yep. so if if I may just maybe take another minute or two just to of sort of something that's, that's on my mind, I just like to, to you know, get it. out there. Um, a friend of mine off, has asked me before a number of occasions, like, do you ever miss working in film? Um, and initially, yeah, at the start, but I guess over time, I'm glad I had the experience and got to do the things I, and got to do the things, um, I got to do the things I did. Um, but yeah, where, where, where am I going out with this? So I'm glad for the experiences. I don't really necessarily miss them per se, but I would also say for people who are wanting to do film and wanting to do creative things like that you absolutely do not have to um don't like don't think that oh i the only way for me to do films and to tell stories is to be working in the industry there are 
there are people I know who've said, you know what, I'm going to do the pragmatic job thing. And in my spare time, I'm going to pursue what it is I really want to pursue, whatever that be, right? Whether that be film or something else. And that's totally fine and can often be quite advantageous because it frees you up somewhat from being chained to the thing. You know, you can make your money one way and you can go use that to do pursue the things you want to do. You don't have to, it's not this, this, this absolutist notion of, oh, if I have to pursue my passion, I have to do it all the time for it to mean anything. No, not necessarily. What does that mean for me? I still, you know, I didn't realize, uh, I didn't know film was going to happen to me. Yeah. Um, but I found something in it that I really, really liked. And I guess it was just telling stories with other people. Um, and I can still do that. I'm still, you know, working on a few bits and pieces and short films with friends and stuff like that. And in no way has it detracted from the fact that I'm not doing this as a full-time job anymore. So I would say that to anybody else, like, you know, if you've got a thing you want to pursue, by all means, pursue it. But don't, you know, don't wait for it to become everything that you do. You can still do those things. You know, I work as a, you will hear me say, I work as a data scientist, not I am a data scientist. It's a job I do. You can do various jobs extremely well and extremely capable without necessarily being completely defined or consumed by them. Um, those are all just, they're all just stories, really. If it the opportunity the came up again for you, Whereas if the ch opportunity came where someone gave you a call and said, listen, I want to work with you again on, on a film, on a film set, would you take the opportunity to do it or would you turn it down? I mean, it would very much depend on the opportunity, right? And, and what, what, yeah, it would very much depend on the opportunity and also, you know, how do I balance that versus what I'm doing currently right now? Because yeah. so, you know, where I am at this point in time, things are going pretty good. I can't complain, you know, things are going pretty good. Um, so it wouldn't just be simply, oh, it's an opportunity to get back in film. Um, it would have to be much, much, so something else, something that really caught my attention. Yeah. And I, I guess I would say something very, very, very compelling because I would have to potentially give up a lot which would take some doing. Um, you never, know. but uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess that's my that's that's my take on it. But I will say, like we, like I said, with with my with some friends and select people, you know, we're still working on odds and sods. You can still shoot short films and do creative things, and arguably sometimes from a better place because I'm not worrying about the, the next paycheck, the paycheck, you know, I have a steady salary. Yeah. That means we can plan. We can maybe do things that we weren't as able to easily do before. And we can still go out and, and do what it is we want to do. Yeah. Right. No, that so makes, it's, yeah. That makes total sense. Thank you so much again for coming on show and for actually sharing that last bit of knowledge. No problem. My Be pleasure. So, because I believe that will also help a lot of people in, because a lot of the time when I'm talking to people at the moment, there is a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. Um, and it's sad to know that people feel so doubtful about themselves and especially with the whole pandemic and... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... what's going on. There, yeah, there's a friend of mine and we have conversations often about various things and the thing that keeps coming up is, you know, doubt. It's, it's, in, yeah. it's interesting how much we... Lim it's actually incredible how much people limit themselves, not because of any actual existential reason but simply because they are not acting and 
how often that not acting, not doing comes from self-doubt. Me transitioning to finance seemed like an absolutely impossible task, uh, yet I, it happened. So there was my perception, my doubt could have held me back. But when you actually go and you actually try things, generally it's amazing. Well, you'd be surprised what can come out the other end That's because true. you're not chained to this narrative of something which may not actually be as true as you think it is. Yeah. I want to thank you again for coming on the Ask People podcast because I know I'm going to listen to this <laughs> and be like, yeah, he said some things that definitely resonated with me. So oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and guys, thank you so much for listening to the Ask People podcast. Uh, please remember you can listen and subscribe to Spotify, iTunes, Google Play and any other platform that you prefer to listen to. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can also donate to the Ask People podcast podcast so we can continue to have conversations with people just like we have today to inspire people to keep on going and stay positive um you can do that by simply going to the savvy rocks website or typing in paypal.me forward slash us people podcast thank you for listening stay happy stay positive and as always please continue to be kind to one another So yeah, I hope, yeah. If people can can take something away from the discussion that that does help them in some way, then absolutely wonderful.